welcome to the last episode of season four of The Taproot. I'm Liz Haswell. And I'm Ivan Baxter. And this season, we have been talking a lot about making decisions to steer your career in different directions. But today's guest thinks that it's more realistic to account for the role of randomness and luck, and that overplanning can lead you down the wrong path. Todd Barkman is a professor at Western Michigan University, a so-called R2 school. We'll talk about what that means and the secrets to his success at this type of institution. So pour yourself a big mug of coffee, you'll see why in a minute, and let's get to the show. So today's guest is Todd Barkman, a professor of biology at Western Michigan University. Todd got his PhD in botany at UT Austin with Beryl Simpson, went on to a postdoc position at Penn State with Claude DePamphilus. In 2000, he started his lab at Western Michigan, where his group studies the systematics and evolution of plants, as well as the molecular evolution of biosynthetic pathways, as you'll hear about in a bit. What I think is kind of cool about Todd is that he has this really broad interest. And in fact, if you look at the list of the classes that he teaches, you'll see both systematic botany and molecular and cellular biology. So we're looking forward to a great conversation. Uh, Welcome to the Taproot, Todd. Thanks, Liz. It's great to be here. And I look forward to chatting with you more. Thanks. So today's paper is Huang et al. Convergent Evolution of Caffeine in Plants by Co-Option of Exapted ancestral enzymes, which comes from PNAS in 2016. So, Todd, could you both give us uh, a definition of what exapted or exaptation means, and then tell us, uh, uh, give us a short intro to the paper? Sure, I'd love to. Exaptation is not my favorite word. The prior term was pre-adaptation, and. I liked that term because I think it, it, it conjured up in people's minds that that there could be traits that were that would be useful later on in evolutionary history of some lineage, but may not have had use earlier in in the history of that lineage. So, acceptation is the way that traits that were previously used for one function can get recruited to another function. I, I guess the the example that Wikipedia uses is that bird feathers actually evolved originally for temperature regulation, but later evolved for flight. Do I have that right? Yeah. So in this study, we were interested in understanding how flowering plants evolved to make caffeine. The way plants like coffee and tea make caffeine has been fairly clear for 20 years. It's I've always been interested in biodiversity and the non-model plants of the world. And so we we wanted to find out how do these other caffeine producing plants besides coffee and tea make caffeine. And so we studied chocolate, um, which most people are aware has some caffeine in it. Um, a, a Brazilian plant, the Brazilian Coca-Cola, um, which, is, which is Guarana, and then uh, a third one is the citrus plant. And no, as far as I'm aware of, there is no caffeine in citrus, but there is caffeine produced in their flowers. We want to understand how, how modern day plants evolved to make caffeine convergently to understand how the enzymes acquired the enzymatic capability to make caffeine independently in all these lineages. And so 
basically used the awesome power of sequencing to infer what the the ancestral sequence of these enzymes looked like and then tested those for activities. Did I understand that correctly? Well, yeah. So the first part of the study was just to understand how modern day plants make caffeine. And that means which genes do they use and what enzymes do those encode? And then what are the activities of those enzymes in the modern day plants? And there were plenty of surprises for us there. We then, yes, went about um, trying to understand what were the progenitor enzymes to these modern day enzymes doing in these plants. Because if enzymes don't just appear out of thin air, obviously, and what we really needed to do is jump in our time machine, go back in time and study those ancient enzymes. I think this was the part of the paper that was the most opaque to me. I, I couldn't understand what how you would do that. Okay, so so this is probably my favorite technological development of the last 30 years. If you had a set of aligned sequences for Arabidopsis, for Brassica, for sugar beet and corn, there's one amino acid position you would be 100% certain about. And which one's that? The methionine. <laughs> there you go. They all start with methionine. Okay. And so for those sites that are completely conserved across the whole tree of life, those are the easy ones to, to, to predict um, because it, those sites look like if they're mutated, you've got a non-functional enzyme. So highly conserved sites are easy to estimate. It's the ones that are highly variable where estimating what those amino acids would have been in the ancestral sequence is much more difficult. But I think what we and others have found out is there are many sites and proteins where it really doesn't matter what the amino acid is in that particular position. It doesn't affect protein function. Once you have an estimate for what the ancient protein might have been like, you then call up a company, thank goodness, these days, and um, they'll synthesize a gene for you with that's optimized in terms of codon usage for your your bug of choice, and ours is E. coli, and, and so then you then just do standard cloning and, and generate protein and study it. In our particular case, we don't ever rely on a single ancestral state estimate. We, we obtain multiple estimates and test multiple alleles, if you will, of what those ancient proteins might have been like. Um, so you, you do have to be very careful with this uh, approach if you want to make sound conclusions. But if you've resurrected five variant enzymes for a particular ancient protein and they all show the same activity, it's just about as safe a conclusion as you can draw about what that ancestral activity might have been like. You know, we think of caffeine as this incredibly important molecule because it has such a strong effect on us. Is it an important molecule in plants or is it just happened to have landed in a few species? So caffeine is pretty well known to have roles in herbivore defense. One of the classic studies at this point in my mind uh, took the coffee enzymes or the coffee genes from uh, and, and transformed tobacco with them so that they generated caffeine producing tobacco plants. Now I'll just pause and say if that's not one of the greatest entrepreneurial <laughs> experiments. Right, two vices in one plant. Exactly. Um, but nonetheless, a plant that's already pretty well defended because of its alkaloids was even better defended against herbivores. So it, it certainly seems to have a, a, a powerful effect on herbivores. Um, the other uh, 
but where you also find caffeine in flowers of several species, including the citrus plant that we studied. And there it does seem to have an effect on enhancing pollinator memory and thereby making pollinators more fidelitous to those particular species, such that they, they won't be carrying pollen from citrus plants to some other plant in the field. And so that seems to be another role. And then the final role is probably the least well understood, but maybe the most important is what does it do in seeds? And it's long been suggested it's allelopathic and inhibits the germination of, of neighboring plants, such that those embryos from the coffee plant, say, you know, would get a better jump on life. Like it's secreted into the soil or something? Exactly. It leaches out of the coffee bean as it does in your coffee maker. It leaches into the soil around the coffee plant. Yeah. Mm -hmm. well, maybe it's making all the good microbes in the soil just like much more productive and, the way and, it works on much human, more alert human yeah. scientists <laughs> <laughs> you go. that's well there's a great hypothesis to test so todd uh how did you actually get into working on this project was it just a deep and abiding interest in caffeine i've trained as a plant systematist so my early life was spent tromping around rainforests, looking for orchid species, describing them and classifying them. One step prior to doing that, I was studying orchid floral scent for my master's degree at Michigan State University. And there I really fell in love with secondary metabolites. Well, in the 19, you know, 1990, 1992, we didn't know much about enzymes uh, producing secondary metabolites. So fast forward to the year 2000, I end up with a, a tenure track position. I've got some startup money and all there are genomes described for you know a few model plants, obviously Arabidopsis. And plants like Arabidopsis turns out have secondary chemical producing enzymes or genes that encode for enzymes. That was a bit of a mind blower because Arabidopsis isn't known for smelling particularly good. But what it did is it opened up the black box of the genes that plants have to make um, secondary metabolites. And so from there, trying to we tried to dig in and find homologous sequences in other in non-model plants like tobacco. And we started out studying methyl salicylate because some of my favorite orchids made methyl salicylate. And we were able to isolate the, the, the genes from various plants that made methyl salicylate in their flowers. And, you know, we uh, eventually were able to express proteins and, and, and study their biochemical functions. But it, the serendipitous part of this was that the enzymes that make methyl salicylate or oil of wintergreen are related to the enzymes that make caffeine. They're part of the same gene family. That was the that was the initial link, and then my interest in in uh, convergent evolution made caffeine just an obvious uh, study to go after. So, Todd, can you tell us a little bit about what your university is and what it means to be a, an R two or an R three school? Sure. Yeah. So. In contrast to a PUI or a, or maybe a four-year liberal arts school, where teaching, I, I, I would say, is that usually the, the primary responsibility, maybe people are teaching two to three classes per semester. Um, our school, which I think is probably fairly typical for an R2 or R3, uh, allows professors to teach one or occasionally two classes per semester. In our department, um, 
people are given fairly modest startups to get things rolling and you have to decide what to do with those limited funds. Really a school like ours, you, you have to succeed as an instructor and as a researcher. Yeah, I mean, I think that's the part that I'm in particular, and I think a lot of our listeners will be interested in hearing about how you successfully navigated that, because it's not easy. I, I was, there's no doubt about it. I was very fortunate. And and I've told people the only reason I got tenure was because of some, a few really great students that got into my lab early on. Obviously, it's the hardest when you're teaching a course for the first time. Um, those are dark years when you're developing brand new courses and trying to get your lab rolling. But you know, once you've got the, the courses developed and then the rest of your, your, the next time you teach, you can perfect it, certainly a huge load is lifted. You really have to kind of love being in the classroom though, to, to be in, in this kind of environment and succeed in this kind of environment. And if someone told me that I, I couldn't teach my classes anymore that you know I needed to go into administration or something. I would have a hard time letting that go. Um, certainly some of my most memorable experiences in my career have been in the classroom. And and so at, but at an R2 and R3, you, you are doing the research or you have undergraduates and graduate students to do it with you basically? Yeah, that's, that's sort of how, how I think most people do research at, at an institution like Western. They, so you mentioned that when you started your job, you had a very modest startup and you had to, and even though you were expected to develop these classes and teach a lot, you also had to develop a research program on a limited budget and a limited time commitment, which sounds, you know, sort of petrifying. How did you think about like what kind of projects would be right for your situation when you were starting up? As, as most of us do, I think I had way too many ideas that I could follow up on. And so the ones that took priority were in some cases low-hanging fruit, but also low-hanging fruit that I thought would be fundable at NSF. I had to be careful in what I cho chose to, to, to you know, spend time and money on. I, I would say after our first summer, um, which was one filled with some frustration, um, we didn't have much data, and that's when uh, that's when things got petrifying for me. I realized, wow, I've got to generate a grant proposal, and I don't have much to write a proposal on. Your things are tense, and you're scared. So, what are you what are you doing to turn that around? One of the things we had to do is we had to be honest with ourselves and say what the current approach isn't working. So we tried a new approach. And so what we said, we, we gave ourselves one more shot at it. We, we said, we'll use new approaches and see if it works. And, and, and had it sort of a, a deadline in mind. If this isn't, if we don't have anything in six months, we have to abandon ship. And so fortunately for us, that, that approach did work. Um, there were also projects where we had to let them go altogether. And so I think it is important not to put all your eggs in one basket. And number two, I think it's important to have higher risk projects, but also some lower risk projects. You have to have a diversified portfolio, if you will. When you were thinking about applying for R3s, did you have a mindset of, I need to think of multiple projects that are doable with undergraduates initially and then and then some graduate students? Uh, you know, perhaps I was naive, but I just, uh, I did not put that, that, much 
long-term planning or thought into it. I've always just followed my nose. If something seemed interesting, I would allow myself to go after it or allow the, you know, have the lab go after it. And, and like I say, unfortunately, there are things we wanted to do, questions we wanted to answer, and we were never able to. With a little help from our friends, we, we, we were successful with some of those. Yeah. So when you say a little help from your friends, was that collaborations that you built? People you had known previously who, who helped you out? Okay. So it, for me, that's as important as, as a couple of good students are. It's also so important to have good friends at your institution, colleagues that you can go to, talk to, borrow from. I mean, my lab wasn't set up for some of the experiments we did, but luckily my colleagues had the equipment we needed and they were always so gracious. And so, so, and when it comes to do, learning new techniques, there's nothing like going to a lab where, where that expertise already exists. And so um, reaching out to my colleagues is something I'm forever grateful for. They, they were always so helpful and gracious. I know people who've gone to these like smaller schools or schools where research isn't prioritized as much as it is at an R1 in terms of funding. And, and it's been really hard for them to get their research off the ground because if you come from a well-funded postdoc lab, it's hard to imagine how much it's going to cost and how hard it will be to do research. And so coming up with a project that's going to be, or projects that are going to be like feasible when I started this position here and I was given $155,000, I thought that was an immense amount of money. I mean, for me, starting up included a very expensive instrument and uh, the, the lab to house it had to be remodeled. Until that happened, there was very little I could do of actual research in my lab. Now, that may be just sort of uh, specific to what I was doing, but I, I don't think that's that uncommon. I mean, Liz, you had a, a big honking microscope, right? I had a big honking microscope, yeah. Yeah. Well, so I, so I can imagine there's some, we've interviewed people here who just could not come here because we could not deliver on what they need. Because, yeah, yeah, could you send all your samples to some core facility somewhere across the country? I, I mean, with microscopy, I, I, that's not the most, efficient way to do it so so we and we've had people decide not to take a job offer because we couldn't provide what they needed but that's rare i'd say we we can usually um provide enough to get people rolling we certainly have, have never said oh we don't want to interview someone who's you know, looks great on paper just because we don't think we could attract them um, because partly partly uh, it comes down to matters that are out of a department's hands i mean negotiations occur between uh, you know chairs or the office for, of the vice president for research and so on and so a, someone who's adept at negotiation might be able to get what they need um but you, you know i think um if you need a, a million dollar instrument it, that you know there there obviously are limits for what our institution can come up with so um but yeah we've never we've always hoped that we would be able to attract somebody or try to uh you know get them what they need we always i think every institution wants to get a new faculty member what they need to be successful when you said that you know you didn't plan too much about what direction your lab was going to go. It sounds like a very different philosophy than what Ambika said or what, you know, what you're asked to 
do in a chalk talk at an R1, which is really lay out, like, here's where we're going. There's the direction I see it. And it sounds like you've taken a very different approach of like, we're going to try some stuff and then we're going to see where it goes and it's going to work out. No, it sounds like you know me too well. Yeah, no, that is exactly how I approached things. We had a smattering of ideas. Some had to be abandoned early on, but maybe we wasted too much time on certain projects. But for me, it's always been hard to um, just define a set of rigid experiments that are going to work and that are going to answer some question. I just, I can't do that. I mean, I have to get into a project and, and see how you know what looks interesting and then oftentimes it's not at all what i planned our, our grant to study caffeine evolution was completely different from the way our study turned out and so i listened to ambika's uh interview or podcast with you guys and she was almost describing a different world from from my experience well tell us more about that maybe you can give us a specific example i am conscious of a few things when i started here i realized I'm not going to be able to compete with the biggest labs, the U.S., because I just didn't have access to the resources. It didn't mean I didn't want to study those questions, but I just realized I wasn't going to be able to compete. I very consciously did decide to go into areas that weren't as crowded. That was conscious. But I've always had to study things that I'm super interested in. And that's that might not be stated frequently enough for people. If I was forced to study Arabidopsis, there are days I would not have been able to get out of bed. I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> but when, when you're studying Rafflesia, which produces the largest flowers in the world that are a meter in diameter, I mean, it, it, and is a parasitic plant, I mean, that kept, that still gets me excited thinking about that crazy plant and, and, and that system. So it's, um, it's a lot harder to do a floral dip, though. <laughs> I was conscious, I consciously made decisions to, to carve out niches that were, were not crowded and, and that just inherently were so interesting to me. But other than that, maybe I'm no good at chess either. Some people can see their moves that they're going to make, you know, 10 steps ahead, 10 moves ahead. But for me, I really have to make a move, see how it feels, and then make a decision about what my next move is going to be. And and if things look interesting, then I, I follow it. And with the caffeine study, there were dark moments when nothing worked for us. But when we got our first breakthrough, there was no question what we were going to spend all our time and all our money on. And so that's what we did. Um, and I, I never predicted it was going to turn out the way it the the way it did. So I guess that that's what I mean by I, I can't. I haven't been able to plan out details of our research program with any degree of certainty over the years. Are the breakthroughs serendipity or did we have some bit of prepared mind you know, for serendipity? I don't know. So this like sort of free form project development versus a sort of project planning mindset, I'm sort of in the middle. I, I've started to try to do more and more of the planning stuff but it's it's often very disappointing, right? Like you think, well, okay, we what you know, we're going to do these set of experiments, and then we'll have a paper, and then those experiments don't happen, or they get harder, or you realize you should have done other experiments, and then so like any timeline you write out is always like completely blown out of the water within a month or two, and so it almost feels like the your 
sort of freeform way of going about it is a little more like less mentally strenuous than the constant reevaluation you have to do when you make plans that you could never actually keep up with. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I'd say that's true. Um, Ivan, are you a planner or are you a non-planner? I guess I, I maybe I'm more of a non-planner in terms of um, finishing stuff off and, and trying mm-hmm. to, to sort of see where the conclusion is. We tend to do very large and involved experiments, and so you really have to be planning those out. But, you know, we do, there are things, there's lots of things that we've worked on that I would not have predicted we would work on because it was sort of there and it was something we kind of felt like we needed to solve to get where we wanted to go. Yeah. You know, so one way I sort of look at it is, is if, if, if you're, it's winter and you're trying to walk across a lake because you really need to get to the other side and you take a couple steps and you, you, you listen to make sure there's no cracking sounds and, 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 you know, maybe you throw a rock ahead of you a couple feet, make sure the, you know, the, the ice doesn't break. And then you, you, I gently make my way across the lake and I sort of feel that's how my research projects go to. That's sort of the best metaphor I can, can use for it. And luckily We've only fallen in through the ice on a couple of occasions. <laughs> right. You know, if you if you have someone who is sort of they're at a postdoc position right now and they're trying to figure out do they want to try for an R one, do they want to go to a PUI, or do they want to try and split the difference and go to a, a, an R two or an R three? What are the things that they should really be thinking through in terms of their science, in terms of their teaching, in terms of their preparation to help them make the decision about whether a place like uh, Western Michigan is the right place for them? In general, if someone thinks they like teaching and love research, they should definitely go for a school like this. You, you, there are definitely adjustments a person's going to have to make coming from a you know a big postdoc lab. One thing is when the tenure clock's ticking, do you really have the time to coach students, undergrads or grad students through the writing process? I wish I had done more of that, but uh, the way it worked out for us. The students were were the hands in the lab and we shared ideas. But when it came down to writing, I did the majority. Anyone who is going to come into an R3 is going to have to have a shift in mindset, certainly. I think one thing that's super important in a school like this is not to overcommit to collaborations. And maybe that's partly because of who I am. But what happened early on was I thought, oh, yeah, let's let's start a collaboration here or there. And then f- soon I found out we weren't able to make good on those collaborations. There just wasn't enough time. There weren't enough people. I think that's a really useful piece of advice because yeah. it seems like you would be tempted to think, well, we can get a lot more done if we do all these collaborations rather than trying to do it all in-house. But then when you're like not holding up your end of the bargain, that could be very problematic. Yeah, so, there's nothing yeah. that feels worse than that when you, when you feel like you're letting down your colleagues at another institution. Mm-hmm. And our three school likes to see also that uh, that a researcher is developing their own research program as well. It's not to say that collaborations aren't viewed positively. They certainly are. But um, you know, we were having enough trouble just doing our own experiments. To, so then to, to then 
spend time and effort on collaborative studies. Just It just wasn't, it didn't work for me. One of the most important things also is getting a lab environment that's welcoming and that is a pleasurable place to be. I mean, students and, and a new professor is going to have to spend a lot of time in those environments. And so uh, if you're trying to get undergraduates into your lab who are already feeling a little uncomfortable about even being in the lab building, you, you want them to be in a lab where they enjoy coming to the lab. And so we had an environment where people enjoyed joking around, hanging out with each other, doing homework in between PCR reactions or whatever. It just, it's really important to foster that kind of environment. And so my office was in my lab for the, at least half of my career to make sure there's always someone around and there was always some community. Here's what I tell everyone who we interview. I say, if you want to have a fulfilling and meaningful teaching career and research career, and dare I say, some kind of meaningful family life, this is the kind of institution for that. If I could leave with one last thought, if a person finds themselves in an R3 or probably anywhere, but especially in R3, I do encourage them to jump knowing that the net will appear. Ivan, you said have confidence in yourself. I think you've got no choice but to have confidence in yourself. You jump, you go for it, and I think it will work out. Well, with that reassuring advice from Todd, (laughs) um, I think we'll wrap things up. So, Todd, uh, if people want to get a hold of you to ask more questions, how would they do that? If people wanted to contact me to talk about anything, uh, I encourage them to use my email, which is todd.barkman at wmish.edu. That's T-O-D-D dot B-A-R-K-M-A-N at W-M-I-C-H dot E-D-U. And you can always reach me at, on Twitter at at E-Haswell. Ivan, how can people get a hold of you? You can reach me at at Baxter Twee. That's T-W-I. And you can reach the podcast at Taproot Podcast. Uh, and with that, Todd, thank you very much for uh, joining us on, on and, and discussing with us. Uh, really, really helpful conversation. Well, thanks. Yeah, it was, it, the pleasure was all mine, I assure you. Thank you. Thanks, Todd. It was great to have you. thank all of our outstanding guests this season and we want to thank you our loyal listeners for keeping us in your earbuds we hope that this has been a useful and enlightening series of interviews and that you are as excited as we are for the next season the taproot is brought to you by the american society of plant biologists and the plant a website it is co-hosted and edited by Ivan Baxter and Liz Haswell and produced by Mary Williams and Katie Rogers. We get editing help from Katie Rogers. We are very excited to have Joe Stormer help us out with transcripts for season four. If you like this episode, tell your friends and colleagues and be sure to subscribe on your iTunes or in your podcast player of choice. Thanks for listening and look for another season of The Taproot later this year. Right on. All right. Four seasons, Ivan. That's not. That's nothing to sneeze at, man. Ah. Uh, uh, uh. Okay.
Welcome. Are you? Oh, are you recording? Yes. Okay. <laughs> um, save that for the blooper reel. Boy, we're getting to be pros at this. <laughs> and then we're just like, uh, 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 uh wow, well, uh. Yeah. <laughs>